Hey folks, thanks for joining us at Fig Tree Ministries. There's two ways you can keep up with us. The first one is to subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking the subscribe button below. That way you'll get notified every time we upload a new video. The second way is to go to figtreeteaching.com and sign up for our newsletter. We send out a newsletter twice per month. Each newsletter will highlight one of our videos and include a lesson plan to help you go deeper into your studies. That website again is figtreeteaching.com. Enjoy today's lesson. The past two weeks we've been talking about parables, and I wanted to do a bit of a lengthy introduction because the next thing we're doing in Mark, Mark 12, is a parable, and it's quite dense. Now, I know every time I say this, I get a few chuckles from the crowd, but this is going to take us two weeks. There's two, honestly, I, I'm like, either I would have to go too fast and there's too much dense material, so our sponges can't accept it all, or we go two weeks, so we're going to go into next week and some really very cool stuff, so that's a little teaser for to be here next week. So we're going to look today at Mark 12, 1 through 12. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there now, or at least we'll be in the vicinity in a second. Today, is it's Scripture heavy. So I generally love to have a presentation, which is all pictures. It's more fun. This, you can't do it in pictures. It's all Scripture. So we're going to be doing a lot of reading, and trying to figure out what Jesus is weaving together in this parable. Okay, now that I got you to turn to chapter 12, there's something that I haven't introduced, that we haven't talked about yet. I skipped it. The phrase, son of David, in the first century, and prior to that, we'll see this next week, the phrase son of David took on a messianic title. So that if you call somebody son of David, you're saying you're the anointed one, you're the Messiah. So it's a messianic title. So that as, as uh, time is going from the time that the Old Testament is written, as time is advancing, and they're becoming frantic to look for somebody who's going to save them, this Messiah figure, son of David, becomes the, the way that you identify Messiah. Now, I want to show you something in Mark. So turn two chapters, or at least one and a half chapters backwards to Mark 10, and it's verse 46 and 47, and this is what we skipped. So as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem for that last week, the Passover week and the week that he's going to be sacrificed as God's Passover lamb to deliver the whole world, they walk through the town of Jericho. And so the story goes, they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man... And then they give how they refer to him, Bartimaeus. Now, 
Mark explains this, right? But in Aramaic, the word for son is bar. In Hebrew, it's ben. Now, how many of your titles in your Bible before this little story say something like, blind Bartimaeus receives a sight or something like that? And we kind of treat this poor guy, look, he made the Bible, right? But we treat him like his first name is blind. Oh, blind Bartimaeus was sitting there. Well, that's not his first name. In fact, we don't know his first name. The Bible doesn't tell us his first name. He's the son of Timaeus. So right here, Mark explains the name, the son of Timaeus. I always feel bad for this guy. He's probably got a regular name, Solomon or whatever. Anyways, so I just wanted to at least throw a, throw a bone out to old blind who happened to be sitting there. Okay, so blind, blind man, Bartimaeus, meaning son of Timaeus, he's sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David. Now, at this point in the book of Mark, in Matthew, Matthew has son of David right at the very beginning. This is the genealogy of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David. Right, right off the bat, he's identifying son of David. But Mark doesn't. Mark goes 10 and, uh, 10 and a half chapters before he finally tells you who it is. So this is his way of introducing to you the phrase son of David as the title for Jesus. Now, tell me, what's the irony? He can't see. So Mark tells, puts the story in as the very first person who can identify Jesus as the son of David, as the Messiah, and the guy happens to be blind. So who's the first person to see his true identity? A blind person. Right, now, physically blind, yes. Spiritually blind, no. So Mark's using irony. If the only gospel we had thus far was Mark, and you're reading this, this is where Son of David is introduced, and you immediately say, ha ha, that's funny. The blind person was the first one to recognize it. But what I want to point out is really this phrase, Son of David. Because in the parable that we're going to look at, the parable is about the identity of Jesus. And he's going to pull in David stuff. Who am I? That's the main thrust of the parable, and we'll, we'll see today how he's weaving that, and next week, how he's weaving that together. Anyways, I skipped this part a few weeks ago, but this is the first place where we see Son of David. Son of David? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, you can find, as they're talking about the sons of David, but I think it comes, it's the intertestamental period where they identify this Messiah as the son of David, because they're looking for a king like David to then come and be the king and rescue. So I don't know that it's necessarily referencing son of David in the Old Testament, but we will see today Psalm 2 is the son. There are other references to the son. Yeah. But I think it's more intertestamental period. It's the, it's the way they're putting together their scripture. 
I'm sure there is. That why would Mark put in? Well, other than maybe that's just his name. But yeah, why put the guy's name in? Yeah, he includes the name son of David and son of, or I'm sorry, Bar Timaeus, son of Timaeus, and oh, by the way, son of David. Yeah, there's also next week we'll look at in Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected. Well, the word for stone is Eben, and the word for son is Ben. And so there's a play on words going on, even with the stone and the sun. So there's more, go- more literary things happening. Okay, so son of David, this, that's who Jesus, his identity. All right, so we're going to see that this identity, Jesus wants them to know who he is, and it's son of David. That's me. I'm the one you're all looking for. It's a messianic title, meaning I'm the Messiah now. I'm coming here to reign. And Messiah, of course, means anointed. So it's God's anointed one. We'll see that in one of the Psalms today. Just like we call blind Bartimaeus, like we refer to him like his first name is blind, we kind of, we do this with Jesus. Like many people speak of Jesus Christ as his, like if his last name is Christ. There should be the word the stuck between that. Jesus, the Christ. Because Christ is the Greek word for anointed, Messiah. So he's Jesus, the Christ, rather than Jesus Christ, like that's his last name. People talk about him like it's his full name. And I know that may seem petty and picky. And people always say, Scott, why do you harp on things like that? Well, because every time we take a step away from the reality of who Jesus is, you lose something. So we have to remember Christ is his title, not his name. That's just, that's a total aside, but okay. So this is going to be the parable. If I keep reminding you that this is a dense and complicated parable. It's not because of you, it's me. I'm giving you the, it's not you, it's me line. Because there's so much stuff going on in this parable. And the, we have to remember, this parable is being told to priests, to the, to the religious leaders. They know their Bible by memory. When Jesus tells a parable to the crowd, he doesn't do this complex parable. Because the crowd might not know all the references. But now he's talking to the priests, and they get it, exactly what he's saying. So when he talks, he speaks to his audience. When he talks to the priests, he adds things that they're going to pick up on that the rest of us wouldn't. Makes it tough. Bonnie said last week, Jesus' parables are hard. I said, yeah, especially, you know, us Westerners, we don't necessarily know all the metaphor. And that makes it tough. Yes. Yeah, they get really angry. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite verses from Jesus is in this parable. Now, this is just review that we've done the past few weeks that we always have to keep in mind. The moment he says we're telling a parable, say, okay, he's departed from Reality. He's using a story to tell it, to convey a message. So it's a story. He's going to do that today. He's going to tell you a story. It's not true, but it's conveying some message. So it's fictional. 
It carries the truth, right? And Jesus loves to add a twist. And he's going to do that today. He's going to start down a path, and then he's going to switch the story and add something into it. And that causes your brain to wake up and say, what's he, do- what's he up to? All right, so parables, what are we trying to figure out? Well, it, they're used to try to understand something that's unknown or difficult. And what we do, the word parable means to cast alongside. So if we say, well, what's unknown or difficult? Well, the kingdom of God is one that's used regularly. The relationship of God and humanity. Human to human relationships. That's always, that's often difficult. Or maybe something about a commandment. And what he's going to do is cast alongside of that a comparison. The kingdom of God is like... A father had two sons, and you say, ah, God is up to something. God's the father. And so now we got to look at what's going on with the two sons. So what are their knowns? Generally, human characters, right? So we have a king, we have a shepherd, you have a father. And as we'll see today, he's going to add in not just farmer, but a tenant farmer. Someone who's been given responsibility to take care of the land. All right, so that's review. Now, let's talk about, I'm going to give you the answer ahead of time of this parable. So what we're trying to establish is Jesus is going to establish, one, his identity. Using this parable, and he's going to identify the actions of the religious leaders. So when we get to the end of the parable, it says, They knew he spoke the parable against them, and they're not happy. This is what we're, this is the the unknown. He's trying to to weave this together. So here's what he's going to use as his known. And this was part of your home word. So Isaiah 5. So if you read Isaiah 5, then you'll immediately see the connection. But he's, what he's going to do is he's going to change Isaiah 5. At least he's going to add, add another element in. So it's not exactly the story, but he's going to start with Isaiah 5. He's going to end with Psalm 118. We're mostly going to cover this next week. But something about the stone the builders rejected being identified with David. And then, of course, Jesus is going to identify himself as that stone. Psalm 2, this is where we're going to spend most of our time today, is kind of a, back, a background of this parable. Psalm 2 is also a messianic psalm. You'll see why. But the emphasis is on a son in Psalm 2. And then the last one, and we'll do again this next week, is some of the cultural thinking. What were the, what were the ideas flowing around this Messiah business prior to Jesus showing up on the scene? And so we'll look at a document that was written, scholars believe, about 50 A.D. No, 50 A.D. That's after Jesus. 50 B.C. Goes into detail of what they think this Messiah is going to look like. So that's today. We're looking at who's Jesus' identity and the actions of the religious leaders. And God willing, I'll be able to 
pull that out of the text. Okay, so now let's go to Mark 12 and let's read the parable straight through. Now remember, part of the context of this is the triumphal entry, right? We did that a couple weeks ago. Jesus is arriving as the king. He goes in and he disrupts the temple. And then we saw, if you say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, and that scholars believe that's, he's identifying that a mountain as, as the temple, that this temple has been corrupted. And who leads the temple? The priests. Okay. So let's read Mark 12. This is now just verse 1 through 5. Jesus then began to speak to him in parables. And I love that Mark says, speaks to them in parables and then gives you one parable. A man planted a vineyard. Now right there, you're immediately back in Isaiah 5. And who's the man who planted a vineyard? In Isaiah 5, who planted a vineyard? God. So that's Isaiah 5 is, we'll get there in a minute, but Isaiah 5, God plants a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and built the watchtower. Now right there is Isaiah 5. He pulls you back to Isaiah 5. We'll read that in a minute. Now comes a twist, because this isn't in Isaiah 5. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers. Now that those farmers are tenant farmers. Someone... uh who's going to take care of the land while the owner's away. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. Now you can see Jesus is just adding detail, right, to say, Let's twist the knife further into how awful these tenants are. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. So clearly, this is all hyperbole. He's building it for effect of how wicked these tenants are. Tenant farmers. Okay, now you get to the good part right here. He had one left to send. And who, of course, is it going to be? His son. Now, a son whom he loved. Now, right there, that's going to take you back to Abraham. Because in Genesis 22, God says, Abraham, take your son whom you love and sacrifice him. So there's a little bit of you could hear Abraham's story in there. But what we're going to go with this idea of son is Psalm 2. And you'll see why there's more Psalm 2 in this than there is the Abraham story. Okay, so he had one son he loved. He sent him last of all saying, surely they'll respect my son, yes? Now come the, the actions of the tenants. The tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, right? So they're conspiring together, They're, the tenants are working together to kill the son because of the inheritance. Okay, let's go to verse 8 now. So they took him, they being the, the farmers, took the son, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. 
So there's the parable. Now Jesus is going to ask a question. Well, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So the whole time we're thinking, if we're listening to this parable happen, we want to know who are the tenants that he's talking about, right? Now, here's my favorite quote of Jesus of all time. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? Who's he speaking to? The priests, the teachers of the law. And then what he quotes is Psalm 118. They sing it every single year. It's like the, one of the most popular songs there is. This is like, if I went to some convention of seminary uh, professors, you know, and I stood up and said, haven't you guys ever read the Bible? For God so loved the world. And they'd all, you could see the smoke start coming out of their ears as they're, as they're getting angry because someone just insulted them. That's how insulting it is to these priests. I mean, you can imagine just, yeah. As, they're, as Jesus, in front of the crowd, by the way, is embarrassing them. Okay, then he quotes this, the stone the builders rejected. So there's that stone, and we have to try to figure out then, how did they view this passage? Who was the stone in their mind? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. A human being can't do this. This is God's actions. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. So who's acting behind the scenes to make all this happen? God is. And you can't stop it. Now, you can obviously see, did they understand his parable? Of course they did. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders look for a way to arrest him. Because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But notice, who are they afraid of? The crowd. And that tells you who is standing there. People listening in. It's the Passover crowd. And they're all chuckling at the way Jesus is toying with the priests. Because they know the priests are corrupt too. All right, it's genius weaving of biblical text together to tell you a story. But now we have to go deeper to say, what do those biblical texts mean? Oh, let me, I forgot about this part. This is, I just put this on your sheet so that you can look at it during the week. Don't turn there, because we'll, we're going to look more at this next week. Mark tells us the parable. That was Mark. But Matthew and Luke, when they tell the parable, same parable, they add a sentence or two. And I just want you to see the sentence. It has to do with the stone. The stone the builders rejected. And so now we need to know something about that stone. And this is what we're going to look at next week. But just so you know, in the other two Gospels, this, these sentences are added. So in Matthew, it says this. Right after he says the stone the builders rejected has become the head of the corner, he says, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. So think, if you're falling and hit the stone, you break. Anyone who fall, who, on whom it falls will be crushed. So either way, woe to the person who hits the stone. Okay, Luke says it slightly different. 
everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. Anyone whom it falls on will be crushed. It's what's really cool too, and this is really hard in English. In Hebrew, the words for broken and crushed or smashed is the same verb. They change a vowel and it means it like amplifies. You can break something or you can smash something. And the smashing amplifies the action. So it's really cool. Same verb, one little vowel change amplifies the action. So there's a little play on, it's like the difference between breaking something and smashing. Smashing is more amplified. So it's just a cool wordplay on what's going on. Yes. Okay, we'll deal more with this next week. What's this, this business of something hitting a stone and breaking? And how does that relate? And how does Jesus then relate it to himself? But I just want you to know that there's two variables that were added to Matthew and Luke. Okay, so this is kind of the, the way we're looking at it. This is just review. Who is Jesus, right? And what are the actions of these leaders? And he's going to weave together these different texts, including things that we haven't talked about from the culture. So we're going to look today at Isaiah 5 and Psalm 2. Next week, we'll finish with Psalm 118 and some cultural things that come out of it. All right, so let's go to turn in your Bible to Isaiah 5. And let's just read this and watch the, the twist that's happening here. God's disappointing vineyard. It says, a love song gone sour, which is really a great play on sour grapes, isn't it? So Isaiah has a vision. Isaiah's vision is coming prior to the destruction of Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. So he sees a vision of things that have gone wrong. And God's judgment is coming towards the people of Israel. So the vision uses a metaphor of a vineyard. So it says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. Now the I here is Isaiah. I will sing. We'll see that God speaks in a minute. I will sing for the one I love. That's God. And for his vineyard. So, so Isaiah is saying, my loved one had a vineyard, right? God planted a vineyard. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, and he planted the choicest of vines. Now, the word, interesting word here, choicest of vines, Hebrew sorek, it means a, like a noble grape. It's not your gafen, which is your normal grape. It's the noblest of grapes. So God planted a noble grape on this the choicest of vines. Now you can see where Jesus comes in, right? He built a watchtower on it. He cut out a wine press. Then he looked for good grapes, but what did he find? Yeah, bad fruit. It yielded junk. So is God happy about this? Nope. It's metaphor for what Isaiah is seeing that's going to happen. Right. 
here's the thing that gets scholars. It's it's the not that he planted a vineyard, but that he cut out a wine press. Why would you spend the money and the time for a wine press when you don't know? It takes years for the for a vineyard to first produce its grapes that you can turn into wine. It doesn't happen right away. But God was expecting big things from you. So I, I built the, the wine press as well. Yes. Well, that's exactly right. He plants a good stock. Now start acting like it, right? That's basically what it's saying. Don't forget, this is like a parable. We've, we've departed from reality, and we're just telling a story to help the people in Jerusalem and Israel understand God's not happy with you. Okay. So here's what God says. Now you can see the quotes come in. Now it's God speaking, right? Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done with my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? So that's God now speaking, at least through Isaiah. Now the part I want to get to is verse 7. So look at verse 7. Because this explains who's the vineyard. Israel, the people. So the vineyard of the, of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. Now remember, as Isaiah is speaking, the kingdom's divided. Israel is to the north, and the people of Judah are to the south. So he's giving you the, he's describing the, par- the parable to you. That the vineyard represents Israel. You were supposed to uh, have good fruit. You've done nothing but produce bad. Now the question is, what does it mean to produce good fruit? Well, look at his response. He looked for justice but found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness but heard cries of distress. Now if we go back to Jesus cleansing the temple, my house shall be a house for all nations. You've made it into a den of thieves. The message is the same thing. You've corrupted my temple, and now I'm going to take that away. And of course, Isaiah, that's what happens. God says, all right, that's it. I'm going to take my vineyard away. I'm going to knock down the walls, take away the watchtower. It's going to be overrun with weeds. And that's exactly what happens in the judgment of Israel. Now, here's what I want to show you. There's a twist going on in this. So let's go and compare these two. In Isaiah 5, who's the vineyard? Israel, it's the people, it's the whole nation, right? In Mark 12, in Jesus, who's the vineyard? Same thing, it's the whole, it's it's Israel. Now, in the Isaiah one, are there tenant farmers put in charge? No. Not in Isaiah. It's just the people and God. And the people rebelled. So what does Jesus introduce? Who's in charge? The tenant farmers. And the moment he does that, now you know, who am I looking for? I'm looking for, who's he identifying as these tenant farmers? Sure, the Garden of Eden is very similar. I've got a garden. I put a guy in charge of it. You ruined it. Get out of here. Yes. Same, it's, that metaphor goes over and over and over. And I think it still applies today. God puts people in charge of things. If you ruin it, you get ejected from it. That's part of the punishment of bad behavior. And it ought to be. That should ought to be a judgment. Okay. He adds the tenant farmers. That's really important. Because if you're listening to the story, you know there's no tenant farmers in Isaiah. 
This is new. Who are these people? That's what he wants to know. The second twist comes like this. In Isaiah, the vineyard was supposed to produce fruit, did it? Well, it's bad fruit, right? But what about in Mark? Are they producing fruit? Yes. It's not that, the Isra- it's not that Israel isn't producing fruit. It's that those darn tenant farmers are stopping God from getting a piece of it. So if we go back to Mark, there is fruit in the vineyard. So all the focus suddenly goes right to these tenant farmers. And the crowd says, whoa. See, if we, look, if we go back to Mark 2, 2, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect some of the fruit. The fruit's there. It's the same message as, as throw this mountain into the sea and be judged. It's the same message as clearing the temple. Who's running this place? Your religious leaders are screwing it up. Jesus is way more critical with the leadership that should know, who should know better than he is with the people who are subject to their bad decisions. Okay, so it's really amazing. He's totally twisting the story, which gets your attention to figure out who's he talking about. Yes. The church everywhere. The church through history. See, I th- sometimes I think if Jesus came back today, he wouldn't run to the atheists or the sinners. He'd go to the Pope. How dare you treat your people that way? I mean, it's a, he is angry at the priests for what they're doing to the people. He's not so critical of the pagans who didn't believe it in the first place. And so sometimes I think you're, it's the judgment of you church leaders better get your act together. Yeah, it's all the above. It's that the religious leaders are they're coming up with rules that benefit themselves and not the people. They're excluding people from, from their, the community of God because of their own rules. They're keeping the money for themselves, and they're in power with Rome. And there's all kinds of things that are happening. Yeah. It's that they're ruining, they're not letting God see the benefit of all the fruit in Israel. Okay, now, since of course this always takes longer than I thought, so we did Isaiah 5. There's a twist. There's something going on here. What I want to do now is look at Psalm 2 because this is so critical to understanding how he's comparing these religious leaders. So we're going to look at Psalm 2. You can turn there. Oh, it's a mess. This is a messianic psalm. So they recognize there's something going on here in this psalm. Now, what I want to do is explain the overall of Psalm 2. There's a setting here. There's some, when the psalm was written, who knows if the first person was actually thinking the Messiah. They're thinking what's going on in our day today. This is kind of the th- what would happen for a king. So, Here's a map of Israel, and it, this is tough to see. Maybe we could flip the lights off just real quick for this one. Here's Jerusalem. Okay, yeah, that's better. Here's Jerusalem. You've got the Dead Sea. You've got the Sea of Galilee to the north. So it's a map of Israel. But this kingdom, the green in here, is Saul. 
I'm only using Saul because I want to show you all the kingdoms around it. So say that Saul is king for 40 years. And if he's a strong king, he starts making treaties with all of these nations around. So look at all the nations. Aram, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Amalek, Philistines. All of those nations that are surrounding King Saul, he's making deals with. And maybe over time, ah, man, I'm really tired of dealing with this guy. I'm tired of this burden that he placed on top of me. And so what happens when power transitions? What do the nations surrounding start to think? There's a weakness. There's a transfer of power. I no longer are dealing with Saul. I've got somebody new. Maybe I can get out of this treaty. But if, I, if I'm this guy who gets out of the treaty and no one else does, then they'll all attack me. So what I need is to collude. I need collusion. And they would collude together to say, let's all break the chains of this new king. And God laughs at them. Okay, so that's Psalm 2. That's kind of the setting, is you've got actual, every time there's a transition of power, the nations around you start to collude. Let's, get, let's break the chains and get rid of this guy, or get rid of all of our treaties. Okay, so now let's read Psalm 2. So here's verse 1 through 3. This is exactly what it's saying. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together. Sound like the countries around Israel? They're banding together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, let me ask you a question. In the parable in Mark, is anybody colluding to overthrow the anointed one? The tenant farmers are. So just by doing that, Jesus is comparing those religious leaders to these nations. And they say, how dare you? And he does this so, in so many different ways to the priests. He's insulting them. Okay, so that's all the nations are saying, let's rise up. Let's break the chains. How does God respond? Ah, uh, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He goes, come on. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies with them with the, in his wrath. And he says, I'm installing my king. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Now, what's the triumph, triumphal entry all about? That right there. God's installing his king. And the triumphal entry into the temple of his king. Now, here comes the part that we all know. I will, pro pro sorry. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. And today I have become your father. So you can see God is adopting the king to say, you're my son. And they know they have to now deal with me, those countries. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the end of, your, of the earth your possession. Now, in the Jesus parable, is there an inheritance? Yeah, they're going to collude against the anointed one and take the inheritance. 
So he's got Psalm 2 as a backdrop to this whole thing. Now, this last line we'll see next week. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them like pieces of pottery. Woe to the pot who falls on the rock. It will be shattered. Okay, so now you got Psalm 2 woven into this. This is why it's, it's deep. I mean, he's got a lot of stuff going on. So here's the part from Mark. He has a son, right? And we'll look at the response. The tenants said to one another, are they colluding? Yes. Are they colluding against the heir? Come, let's kill him, and we're going to take the inheritance for ourselves. So we have something like this. Jesus' true identity. He's saying, me, I'm the installed king now. And I'm the son in that parable. So we got that part. And we're going to see son of David. But what about the actions of the religious leaders? Well, he says, you're conspiring against the son. I see what you're doing. It's all a conspiracy. And, oh, by the way, I'm going to compare you to the Gentile nations which, of course, they're not real happy about, which is exactly what they did in Psalm 2. Now, just in case you think that's kind of crazy, how do they know that this New Testament is interpreting Psalm 2 like that? Let's look at another example from the New Testament. So turn to Acts 4, 25 and 26. We'll finish on this for this morning. And what we see here, Acts 4, 25 and 26, should look oddly familiar. So the situation is the disciples have been out healing people in the name of Jesus, and the priests, the leaders of the temple, are not happy. So they pull them in and say, knock it off. Quit using the name of Jesus. Peter says, we can't. If that's the truth and this is what heals, then we're going to do that. So they kick them out, right? And the disciples go back together, and now they're praying. And this is what their prayer comes up with. So verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. So they're, they're assigning Psalm 2 to David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot, people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord, against his anointed one. We just saw that, so that's Psalm 2. Now, here's their explanation. Verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate. So Herod is a king that represents parts of Israel. And who does Pontius Pilate represent? The Roman Empire. They met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Who did they get together with? The priests. That's the, that's the, the trial that's going on on the, on the day of Jesus' death. And it says they met together in this city to do what? Conspire, just like Psalm 2. So he's, they're lumping in the temple leadership with the Romans and the Gentiles and Herod, to conspire against Jesus. That's how they're reading this psalm, and it's just, it's so cool 
to see how these psalms come, come to talk about who Jesus is, right? And, of course, who anointed Jesus at his baptism? God did, yeah. He's anointed by God. And woe to the pot who falls on that rock. Or woe to the pot who the rock falls on. Either way, woe to the pot. Okay. It's dense. And they get it because they know their Bible by memory. So who's Jesus' true identity? I'm the son, Psalm 2. I'm the heir. I'm the installed king. Now we're going to look next week. I'm the stone. I'm the son of David. There's, all, there's still more going on in this. But of course, in the actions of the religious leaders, you're conspiring against God's anointed. It won't end well. All right, so that's this week. We'll do a quick review next week because there's a lot in there. And then we'll look at some more really, really amazing stuff from, uh, yes. Oh, no. So the, the priestly line is descendants of Aaron. So you have to be born into the priesthood. But there's always political stuff going on. If you read the history of all of the high priests, they're always dabbling in the politics of who will favor them and put them in power. So there's, they're, coll they're colluding with Rome, no doubt. If there's collusion anywhere, it was happening there. <laughs>